0: Oh am Film and television podcast, you didn't know you needed. I am one of your hosts, Michael Shields, and uh, we have with us today making his return to the show, Christian Needon. He uh film historian, writer, podcaster, everything. Uh, yeah. Welcome, welcome back, Christian. Great to be here, Michael. Um, so today we are gonna talk about the name of the rose. It's um it's a Sundance television series adapted from Umberto Ecos. Is that Eco? Eco? Echo. Echo? Echo's novel. Um, it's a story that is set in 1327 where an enlightened friar played by John Turturro and his young apprentice played by Damien... Uh, is it Hardrung? Mm-hmm. Hard-run. Um They investigate a series of mysterious deaths at an abbey risking the wrath of a powerful inquisitor. It's uh, It's also a 1986 film starring Sean Connery and Christian Slater. Uh, that's a note. So we'll be talking about that as well. We'll be talking about the book uh, all the themes present. Hey, how did you come upon it? What was your first? Did you read the book first? or I
1: watched the movie uh, a okay. long, long time ago. Yep. Back in a different incarnation of A&E when mm-hmm. it, they used to show all kinds of interesting yeah. films from way back. And it was the way, uh, before I even saw the movie, it was the commercial for the movie. And they presented it as a medieval murder mystery. Mm. And I thought... Even as a teenager at that time, I was—I thought that was really intriguing—and yeah. I didn't find out till after that my uh, both my parents at one time had read the book. Okay, and um, I held off on reading it until about another five or six years mm-hmm. later. And I was on a, at a summer job uh, over the course of a month and read it over the course of a month when I was up in Maine. Yeah, and uh, it was really really good. I actually got it at a used uh, book used bookstore in Belfast, Maine. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy, I, I, I took the book and went up to the front. And he said, "Oh, you'll like this. Oh yeah, this is a yeah. good
0: one." Yeah, it's got an uh, incredible reputation. I have not read it. That's the only thing. I watched uh, the series. I watched the movie, but um, I haven't read it. But it was written in 1980, translated to English in 83, I think. But mm-hmm. it's, it's, I mean, it's sold over 50 million copies. It's a, it's, it's a huge success. It's, it's, it's renowned. It's become, It's
1: one of the you know best-selling books ever published. Yeah, and it's really a, a testament to the The author's approach to how to stand out in mm. uh, from other other mysteries, other histories, other other um, look you know analysis of, of just the human behavior, human yeah. logic. Yeah, um, it's a combination, a layering of all that stuff, and the, and it's that's really. What's kept it uh, kept it relevant and yeah. kept people returning to it? Yeah, the they- themes
0: resonate, and they're really they're weighty, and they, there's a lot to chew on. There's, it's, I mean, in the film and, and the book and the series, um, they, there's many layers to it. There's a lot of different ways to enjoy it. Whether it's just the murder mystery, which is very compelling. There, I mean, there's a story of forbidden love in there. There's a, you know, there's a budding friendship. There's a lot to pick apart about the church and people in power. I mean, there's a lot of ways to really take in this film.
1: And and one of the most important parts is the setting. It's the idea, it's 1327, you're about 20 years out from the biggest apocalyptic event of that era, which is the Black Plague that sweeps through and and really um, puts puts to a test um, the existing institutions of Europe, Mm -hmm. including the monarchies, the church, which ironically actually was the most reliable thing for a lot of people of that time when everything else is falling apart, when people are dying all around you, what's left. And that's the continuous institution of -hmm. of the the church and um, the the local uh, lordships. And those two aspects are kind of pitted at odds um, in the, in the course of this book, because it's a debate um, that's, that's taking place at this Abbey um, between uh, the, the papal delegates mm-hmm. and um, representatives of the, I believe, the Franciscan order, mm-hmm. and they, um, at at heart of it, is whether the church should um, should give up its wealth uh, or its uh, or it should continue to, um, especially the, the pope and bishops and others mm-hmm. should be able to retain this this incredible wealth and position and yep. standing that they mm-hmm. that, that they've attained, yeah. and. Um, that's something that's the that echoes even to this day you know as, as we're sitting here the pope just got done um having uh, a gathering uh, where he mentioned discussed the idea of uh, priests being able to get married of deacons female deacons for the first time Fantastic. in church history i
0: appreciate this uh progressive yeah. leaning pope it's wild yeah and it's, it's necessary and, this,
1: and these are landmark things mm-hmm. um but at the at the heart of it you know have to have a at the discussion of these things is almost like a background element yeah. uh, in the in the course of it, and in both the movie and the the miniseries, yeah. Where the movie treats it basically as as a background element, um, the miniseries puts it uh, full frontal, which is the essentially the the survival of the Franciscan order, mm-hmm. um, of these uh, of an aspect of, of the Catholic religion, which reaches out, which not only reaches out to the poor but itself. Um, embraces poverty yeah. And those that's thats a, an interesting element Throughout this uh, Throughout both of them Because um, the idea of Knowledge being its own wealth Compared to money yeah. in, in both these It's its mm-hmm. own currency mm-hmm. And it's something that the um, That the monks at this monastery uh, Kind of have Accumulated the greatest wealth of In the Christian world they have this library that uh, has more books in it of knowledge from uh, the past 1,500 years mm-hmm. than anywhere, than anywhere yeah. else. And their, their job at this abbey, these monks, is to, to copy and maintain these books in this uh, very unique library, which is designed like a labyrinth. Mm-hmm. And one of the books that comes into possession in this library is a very rare and important book, a book that kills and for which men will kill. So yeah. to speak, and yeah. that's what the whole story turns. Around. Yeah, no, I
0: mean, at the heart of this um, this uh, the, this tale is the is a debate about the theological meaning of laughter, which is really really cool, and it's um, uh, you know it's it's about that special sacred book that um, that that they're they're hiding from people. Is I mean, that's what they're he's, he's keeping it from people, and um, that's second poetics. Right. It's Aristotle's.
1: Not, it, it's, exactly. It's not too much of a, a spoiler to say it's, it's Aristotle's no, but, And we, we second should book speak in poetics. spoilers.
0: I mean, I think most people that jump on this have seen it or will hopefully watch in advance. Don't don't feel no need to hold back. Sure. Yeah. The
1: Aristotle's second book of poetics, uh, again, it's one of the the great things about the, the, both the book and the, the adaptations is really giving you an idea of where the Greeks and their knowledge stood in in the minds and in, in the values of middle age intellectuals. Mm-hmm. They they're from a they were looked at. Got people like Plato, Aristotle, all all of the the great uh, the Greek writers, playwrights, poets had a special place because of um, they were pre Roman, but at the same time uh, they were still considered the foundation of thought. So. Even though technically they were pagans, to a lot of these the, the Christian uh, uh, copyists and intellectuals that were maintaining their work, there was a value and an importance to it that, that um, that's really delved into in this, in this story. And as one of the characters points out about the value of why this book is so important, is because um, the perhaps the greatest. Uh, Certainly, the most well-known philosopher of the ancient world, Aristotle, um, the tutor of Alexander the Great, um, the heir to Plato, uh, one of the great, just the most important uh, writers and thinkers—not just of the ancient world, but of, of all time—basically yeah. um, looks into and, and analyzes what's the importance of laughter in our everyday mm-hmm. life, and that is seen as a threat by someone who hates the idea of yeah. laughter. Yeah. And for the specific reason that if people think about it too much, they start laughing at, at the um, life's darker moments, mm-hmm. and specifically, potentially laughing at God. Yeah. And that's seen as a threat to the power of, of the church mm-hmm. and of society itself. Yeah. One, of the, one of the examples he uses, and I think that the movie really hones in on more than the miniseries, is the idea that he makes a comment to um, in this case John, uh, Sean Connery, who plays a guy in, um, named William of Baskerville mm-hmm. who's uh, basically uh, staked with trying to solve uh, a series of murders at this Abbey. character says uh, says to him um, that, that laughter distorts the features of the face mm-hmm. and turns it turns man into a monkey. And, oh wow and William <laughs> re- replies to him that monkeys right, do yeah. not laugh yeah. That is something that man is only reserved to do. And something that the movie does repeatedly is um, it shows the the effects of laughter. It deploys them very strategically when people laugh, whether it's monks, whether it's peasants, Mm. whether it's whoever is is doing it at, at a particular time. It's to advance the plot of the movie and show why this character, who hates laughter so much, thinks of it as a threat. Yeah.
0: Yeah, which is a big deal. And they... um. You, you were talking about how um, uh, knowledge as a commodity, and that this is like the value, uh, you know, they really get into the, the, the true value of, um, you know, of, of laughter and what it can do. And uh, there's an amazing, amazing part where um, um, John Turturro's character in the miniseries is talking about um, just that value. And he's just like, he, he mentions how, um, you know, it's, it's what make you go, ah. And it's also, um, and I'm actually going to play the clip right now. It's just it's so good. Comedy tells of base and ridiculous creatures and does not end with the death of its protagonists. It achieves the ridiculous by showing us the defects and vices of ordinary man. It actually obliges us to examine them more closely. It tells us things differently, and it makes us say,
1: ah, this is just how things are, and I didn't know it.
0: Yeah, and you see how also he points out how, um, uh, you know, comedies actually can, can, you know, shine a light on some of the ills and, and you know then he does he has this another amazing line and, and, and towards the end perhaps the uh, mission of those who love mankind is to make people laugh at the truth to make truth laugh and that's, that's really deep and it's just showing the power of comedy to really you know show, um, show us some really important things about human nature or uh, power structures and, and all that
1: well, certainly, where stand-up comedy stands in our mm-hmm. in pop culture at mm-hmm. the moment, I think comedy's definitely delved into that social commentary, yeah. and political. Comedians commentary. are
0: like kind of philosophers of the modern day in a lot of ways.
1: Absolutely, yeah. back I mean,
0: to Carlin. I mean, I think I, Carlin, some of his—you uh, watch those today—so many of his truths that he was speaking um,
1: truth to power about are, are so relevant now more than ever. It's crazy. People from Carlin's generation as well, the people who came up in the 50s, 60s, the, the foundations of the modern stand-up comedian as well came up at a time, specifically here in the States, where the power of the church, um, the things that, that they had the ability to cover up in society, mm-hmm. now are coming home to roost in terms of, of scandal. And whether that um, has to do with marriage, sexual abuse, mm. um Take your pick, and a, a number of those issues come up within the miniseries, come up within the book, uh, within the book and mm-hmm. the movie as well. Um, specifically, homosexuality, and that's something that's that um, the difference between the movie and the miniseries. Miniseries really takes it and runs with it because they have more time to work yes. with yep. um, to show where this where um, homosexuality stood within the doctrine of the time. Mm-hmm. in in the Catholic church and also within, you know, the, the close confines of a monastery that basically where the, you have a whole, a bunch of guys that, that cannot marry, but are still uh, filled with curiosity, Mm -hmm. temptation, Mm -hmm. lust, all these things that, that human nature that you cannot just uh, wish away by or pray away, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's one of the great, um, one of the great subtexts going through the miniseries is exploring those those aspects of man. absolutely.
0: And I mean, it's that just you saying that made me think about also how um, those who are amongst the most vile of the monks, the way they uh, the way they looked at women, kind of as as temptresses, and and you know there was kind of like an evil um, mindset some of them had, and I think that's because they you know were invoked those things that they should not supposed to want.
1: Right. Which and, and I think the movie does much more that, in its narrow focus yeah. of the time it has to work with in a couple of hours of really taking that and leaning into that mm-hmm. aspect of the mm-hmm. story. Um, it's almost to a comical degree, a very self-aware comical degree, where these guys who are saying, you know, quoting scripture about this about woman's place, whether it's in, in society or within religion and, and how the, the negatives when none of these guys have ever been with a woman Mm. for the most part, the ones who are the most negative toward them and those that are with them surreptitiously or, or, or taking advantage of their position to do so, um, are contemptuous of them in, in, but not so vocal more an act than, than, um, than vocalization. Specifically, I mentioned, um, one of the most interesting characters in both the movie and the, the book is a guy named um, Remigio, mm. and Remigio runs the kitchens. And in the movie, he's uh, um, basically uh, made a deal with what—who who is in the movie the only female character, which is uh, uh, known as the girl who's from a village down below yeah, the monastery, yeah. trading sex for food, mm-hmm. essentially. And um, the William of William Baskerville's uh, apprentice, Adso of Milk has uh, a brief affair with the girl um, in in the book and in the movie, and that's where um, eventually um, the direct parallel to the name of the book and the movie, um, the name of the rose, is drawn from, um, for the most part. It has multiple meanings, yeah. I think, in the yeah, end. Clear. But um, but it's interesting, the idea of, of, of a woman's place, um within within that that side within the movie was very limited. Yeah. Again, within the eight hours or so of the miniseries, more female characters come, come into play. Um, specifically uh, someone from Remigio's past. Um, just to expand on on the I the, the idea here. Um, a couple of members of, of this uh, society of monks within the, the monastery were part of uh, something called the Knights. Who were a sect that had risen up from the peasantry and um, parts of the rebellious parts of the of the church and monasteries to basically strike back at the rich and and the the wealthier aspects of the church, killing priests and and wealthy people and seizing back wealth and 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 so forth. And then were eventually put down very ferociously. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, in the miniseries, the leader of uh, Dolcino. And um, and his wife have a have a daughter who um, survives the uh, um, wiping out of the sect and sw- and eventually is essentially swears revenge on the man responsible mm-hmm. for it, who ends up presiding over um, the uh, various happenings at the at the monastery during the course of the story. A guy named Bernardo Gui. She, that, in the miniseries, it struck me as it's, I don't believe it's in the original book mm. portion. No, is it not? Okay. It's not. Yeah, but I was it's, curious about that. It's a smart addition
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: for keeping the interest of an uh, international audience. Um, Dolcino's uh, daughter's named Anna, and for the purposes of how, how sh- uh, her story plays out, you might as well have called her Hannah. Mm. Uh, if mm-hmm. anyone has seen the social uh, Ronan movie, of the same name, yeah. it's a girl who's raised by her father in seclusion to be essentially a professional warrior, yeah. and uh, it's um, this is the same same kind of gist of it. Um, and she comes into play to try to um, break into the monastery during the course of this investigation and this debate to kill Bernardo. Um, it's interesting too that uh, we also get flashbacks of of the way uh, the Dolce uh, sect behaved and, and interacted with the peasantry with each other and why, uh, Bernardo, uh, and, and the pap uh, the papal side, um, despises them so much. It's something that, um, during the time of the movie, you never have enough time to really get into. Yeah. Um, well,
0: yeah. I mean, I'm so glad they did, um, this, to me, this really, this story with all this depth and all these, you know, intersecting worlds and, you know, i it, it's, Really made for a, a limited series like that. It's, I mean, I there was, you know, the movie's great, tons of fun, but I mean, there's a lot of topics and a lot of this story that that can't be told in in, in just that short amount of time. So
1: yeah, and it's it's a big budgeted thing. Yep. Uh, they've uh, international, multi-country um, budgeted, funded mm-hmm. um, miniseries that was sold in over a hundred countries, and by by doing that, you kind of avoid having to tamper down. Certain aspects of the story to please any one market or yeah. one country, yeah. and that's important. And I understand maybe certain additions uh, being made to to have have that happen, mm-hmm. but it didn't stop them from having a pretty top notch cast. Yeah. And yeah. I think they were willing to go large with some of the issues and being able to kind of explore their world a little more than other miniseries I watch are are not necessarily. Willing to do they're, They want to kind of streamline things a little bit more I'll give you a couple of examples Please. One of them is The first night that, all, that both sides are, are gathered at the monastery Get about three or four minutes Of Remigio In the middle of the floor in the dining room Going over the specific menu they're going to eat And everyone reacting to the various things He's Of this medieval, specifically medieval um, menu set that he's he's running down, which gives the viewer an idea of what people back then actually ate at the highest level, and it's it's interesting, you know, it's like you know not just rabbit, but certain vegetables mm-hmm. and roots and wines and all the, and all these other things that that go into that. Um, the other side of that again is is flashbacks to the countryside of um, the rank and file peasantry which you don't get too much of at all in the movie, um, but to its great, to its great um, benefit, the miniseries does try to show you a world beyond beyond, beyond the, walls, the, walls. the walls of the Abbey. And that's, yeah, absolutely. And, and it lingers again and again. One other specific mention of that is um, uh acquaintance and former partner among the uh, the uh is uh, the, the Hunchback, um, and he makes paper. For the uh, for the monastery, for these these um, that the copyists use, and get a chance to see uh, a couple of minutes of of this paper, this old medieval style paper mill yeah. set beside a stream, and you see how the water runs in and the yep. things yeah, move around, and that's yeah. how it's made. Yep. And then you are rewarded a little bit more as a viewer by the fact that he actually captures people and tries to. Um, tries to use the secluded nature of this paper factory for his own darker means but it makes it its own setting and it kind of expands the world more than um than you would otherwise be of expected yeah yeah absolutely
0: um yeah no and, and you we were talking about um you know how uh you know you mentioned they had a great cast and they really really do and um, you know, the John Turturro, a it's a bit, I mean, he wasn't only acting in it. He's a writer, executive producer for it. So this is, this is, you know, his baby in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, he is William of Bakersville That's cool. and, and what a, uh, Bast- pardon me. And, uh, he, it's just, it's really, it's, it's, it's quite a role. I mean, I could see how an actor would really be, want to take, you know, play this role and be this character. I mean, he's, he's so shrewd. He's, um, well, and it's fascinating to think about. He's actually, he's modeled after Sherlock Holmes and named after both Sherlock Holmes and um, William Ockham, which, Ockham's razor, which uh, he employs a lot as, as you know, when he is investigating, um, you know, that that premise should, shows that one should always accept as most likely the um, uh, simplest explanation that accounts for all of the facts. And so that's, he's very logical in that way. And uh, what you know what a performance and it's just it's it's really a fascinating compelling and uh incredible character
1: yeah absolutely you know he's uh master of deduction but also yeah. of debate yep. of, of gathering his thoughts of of really um, being very careful with dangerous people that he has to um, debate with on, a, on an intellectual level. Yeah. And that's really something that this series is about. It goes back, again, to the funding of the series and, and something like this getting on television or streaming services around the world. Mm-hmm. Again, more than 100 com- uh, countries. Yeah. Is a supremely intellectual series. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that, that it's, it's condescending to the audience. I think quite the opposite. I think it's given the audience a lot of respect Agreed. for following not just the mystery, but wanting to be curious to know more about the world that they're seeing. Um, one of the things that, that's part of that is, is a lot of Italian names, Italian German names mm-hmm. of characters that you have to follow around. Yep. Um, that, you know, they look somewhat similar. Somewhat, their yeah, own. yeah, The movie that makes the, sense. Yep. The movie was a little bit, um, was a little bit more to the point of making each of these characters strikingly visually memorable, yeah, and differentiating, and unique, yep. and unique to almost a almost a comic, comical <laughs> yeah. extent. Uh, Especially I, looking back now, the yeah, mid eighties uh, film. Too, he, yep, Jean-Jacques and I, the uh, the uh, director s- said that he scoured Europe and America for the most, um. Visually weird-looking characters oh, he that he could find. He was actually,
0: yeah, that was a mission of his. Yeah, to, cool. so For and it, it
1: works yep. that the idea that in a short form that that the audience will be able to see yeah. and associate the names with these with these very interesting-looking people, mm-hmm. and that's that's something that's really uh, smart for a screenwriter. For a screen
0: yeah. And I'm glad they didn't, you know, make it make, you know, let you off the hook that much on the miniseries like that. It's it's it, it is a, a more heady experience.
1: Yeah, and I one of the the biggest differences if you had to boil it down when it comes down to, is is to character and yeah. the idea of, of yes, you can put you can put lines in characters mouths, but it's it's how they deliver them and how mm-hmm. the context of, of how you portray them. Um, the biggest the biggest difference, I think uh, between the two, in terms of uh, the time and space given to those characters, is, is Bernard Agui. Um He's played by F. Murray Abraham in the first time around, almost as a late in the film um, stunt stunt casting. It was the first uh, film Abraham had done after Amadeus, and basically was guaranteed to get a pop from the audience mm-hmm. when when he appeared on screen about two two thirds of the way into the film, as as something that mixes thing mixes things up yeah. as um, Connery's William struggles to close the case, and all of a sudden is interrupted by this very dangerous inquisitor who he has previously worked with and crossed, and could very well um, be a danger to him again um, The guy who plays him this time around uh, mm. actor actor as well is it's you know he's given basically as as many or more lines in time than Torturo, and it's pretty uh, pretty amazing role um because there are times where he's basically becomes um you don't have not necessarily sympathy uh it's not necessarily sympathy for the devil situation but uh given enough space to um kind of understand
0: their point of view
1: and it 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 develops it develops the stakes between him and and everyone else yeah uh, and why he's a danger to every to everyone else there um and that's that's very very interesting. The other uh, big difference is um, Adso, the, um, the the apprentice, apprentice in this to, to him. Yeah. Yep. Slater plays him as uh, pretty um, innocent to the world. Yeah, um, it's, this is his first time in anything as shocking as mm-hmm. this happening before uh, the recasting has him as a soldier before he gives up uh, the battlefield to yep. become uh, a violence shunning monk. Yeah. I think some, the story would have been a little bit elevated, in my opinion, by having that innocence uh, of of Adso because it, having the extra danger yep. to one of the main characters you're seeing mm-hmm. this story as elevates the stakes again as well. And I think that's something the movie did as well. Uh, this kind of sneaking, um, like uh, just just um, vibe of of uh, constant uh, danger mm-hmm. from various areas yeah, coming yeah. coming for both of uh both William and Adso um and one of the things as well in the movie with because of Adso's innocence and his beauty so to speak is the idea again of uh sexuality's place mm-hmm. in in the mystery itself of the murders and yeah. the murder that sets it off um Adelmo who is the first murder or death of pardon me of this of this story is a suicide mm-hmm. um, that basic, basically throws himself off of tower out of guilt for um, uh, trading sex with a, another monk for a- access to this book. Yeah. yeah, and this same person that he has traded for has eyes now for for Adso mm-hmm. when he appears on mm-hmm. the scene and. Um, but throughout the movie, one of the, if there's a very subtle this again the subtle thing of. Um, Men in close proximity, um, and you know certain things that are, are part of the, the from an outside point of view would be construed as um, male love. For instance, the first the first time uh, the uh, head of the monastery greets um, Sean Connery's William, they kiss on the lips, mm-hmm. and it's this mm-hmm. this uh, uh, kiss of peace, of greeting that they've come through. And this is as part of a very this is a very um, you know. it's... Just part of, of of the procedural element yeah, yeah. of of grading that talent monks, talent. The monks do yep. for each other, yep. but it's portrayed on screen in a very deliberate yeah. way to just signal there's things that suppose that are part of the procedure, mm-hmm. but then you have humans, you have basic human sexuality, human uh, um, uh, curiosity, yep. all these other things that kind of come out of that, and. Again, it's something that the miniseries goes into. Something that's not portrayed in the movie, yeah. but is something very much so in the, in the miniseries is the mourning of of former monks that uh, have uh, lost. their were former lovers mm-hmm. that, and and how that's much more sympathy than there is than uh, there is in the movie, where essentially the only overtly homosexual character is not only you know portrayed as a you know overweight. Mm. Um, you know, pale as moonlight, balds, you know, on un- just kind of a repelling looking yeah. character, to a, to an effect because mm-hmm. I think obviously in a short amount of time the screenwriter said okay, what's going to drive a young young guy to kill himself over over an encounter? It yeah. can't just be some normal looking guy; it has mm-hmm. to be something that was that this guy was extra extra shame uh, shamed, extra guilt, about yeah. And again, yeah. it's like he needs the is basically trying to deliver to the audience in a very short form. Something that was going to ha- deliver that message quickly.
0: Yeah. So I think yeah. it's
1: and it's something definitely it's the you, power of
0: casting right there too. Yeah.
1: Oh, absolutely. And if you go back to people who look back on the film and its portrayal of, mm-hmm. of certain aspects of women, of homosexuality, yeah. other stuff like that, it definitely takes criticism for it. Yeah. Sure. But at the same time, it's to an effect. Yeah. If it wasn't to an effect, if it was just flagrant and, yeah. and tossed off, that'd be one thing. Yeah. But I think it is an advancement of the story, and yep. it's something again that the miniseries rectifies by going the complete opposite, giving a lot of breathing room Mm -hmm. to those two aspects, those two issues.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I have a question I want to ask you in a sec about kind of those differences. But uh, real quick, uh, welcome to the party, pal. It's part of the Osiris Network. Osiris is a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics they love. Go to OsirisPod.com to check out all the podcasts, the live events. uh, Sign up for the newsletter while there. It's uh, great stuff, Osiris Pod. Dot com. So I was curious, I having not read the book, um, is there anything that, that you feel was powerful or that affected you in the book that either didn't show up in the film or the miniseries or something that didn't translate well? Or is there anything you can speak on when it comes to the book? I want, I want to learn more before I you know do eventually dive in.
1: Well, again, I think it goes back to the Dolce Knights. I think it's something that... Echo Echoed supremely well was was setting going back and forth setting the scene of the era and the time and something that the miniseries does kind of does do is is try to do flashbacks of Dolcino and his and his followers mm-hmm. and that that kind of thing. The way Echo handled it was less. It's it's through um, stories. It's through it's through the testimony and memories of the characters. These monks now yeah. years later. Uh, recalling these these things, and I think that's that's something that um, uh, for a filmmaker, especially in the miniseries side, I think they said we'd rather show than tell. Instead of um, even though both the movie and the book open up with the voice of Adso mm-hmm. saying he's recalling that at that time, the book is more of a again um, in its in its telling much more the, the unique voices and the unreliable. Unreliable narration, yeah, of each of these different points of view, mm. kind of a Rashomon kind of thing. Yeah, um, that's something that I remember was was very um, gripping because something about the the what it does is it really sets up the stakes for the loss of the Abbey at the end of the book. Yeah.
0: Um, oh, absolutely. Yep. The idea of the, the library specifically,
1: exactly. Yeah. When the library burns down, the idea that the loss of this the place of books place of knowledge, uh, that's separate from just the Bible, from biblical texts yeah. or, or sermons or, mm-hmm. or people using, uh, using the power of pulpit, uh, for their own, their own yeah. sake. It's pure knowledge. And, uh, again, perhaps most, I guess the most in the end important character in the book is, uh, the venerable Jorge. Um, the blind uh, monk who secretly controls power in the monastery and has had to grudgingly seat it as his eyesight has has left him, mm-hmm. and so he's secretly placed um, different a, a new abbot, um, a new head of the library who will answer to him that he'll be able to do as he sees fit. He has his worldview in both. It's is very interesting. Um, He's a guy that, as much again, he's a guy who hates laughter, and is and gives in his most memorable scene in both in probably all three incarnations, including the book, gives a fiery sermon about essentially the end of days, mm-hmm. the Armageddon, and and uh, against any kind of uh, any kind of want for advancement, the fact that there's yeah. nothing new under the sun, mm-hmm. and that's something that I think as a reader uh, struck with me this this character that. Even in the midst of that sermon, even in the midst of, of, of fighting against advancement of knowledge, advancement of laughter, yeah. against all these things, he has a grudging base respect for someone like Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Great mm-hmm. writership, great knowledge and maintaining it, not advancing it. And that's something that he that is, he overtly says during the course of the movie. There's no advancement of knowledge, there is just a maintaining and copying it in some grand kind of circular fashion. Yeah. And that was something that that uh, stuck with me in all three incarnations is this character, this um, supremely evil guy in, in yeah. the end because of, of yeah. his work. Into how, how
0: villainous do you have to be to hate laughter? Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> right, right <laughs> off the bat. Yeah, he does have that idea that, um, you know, most everything's kind of been done before, said before. I know in the book, uh, the there's a quote that, that gets a lot of play about books. Um, they mention how books always speak to other books and, Every story tells a story that has been told,
1: and that's like a, a theme uh, from yeah. that angle. And one of the things that should be said is that there's no way, I mean, if you, if you pick up Name of the Rose, it is a very thick book. Yeah, yeah, it's weighty, right? Yeah. It, it's weighty, and to try to translate it exactly, I, I give the miniseries an enormous credit. Mm-hmm. It, it did a hell of a job in eight hours. Something that's fascinating is the movie, because the movie was made when Echo was not only still alive, but within about five Six years of of what well, was within three years of the English translation of it, and he had mixed feelings at the at the time about it. And I know that the, the director to even appease that um, that notion made a very interesting thing in in the opening credits of the film. It said it's a palimpsest, I believe, mm. of Umberto Eco's book. And if anyone knows that word, it means it's something of a of a written document that is. Kind of erased and then used again, where you write over it, but the remains of of the former words, and this can be used in in uh, art canvas context mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, the remaining is kind of still so, uh, lightly visible underneath, almost as a as a watermark. Yeah, and what that means is is that when you're trying to re- reinterpret something, mm-hmm. there's the original idea there, but this is your your own take on it. Now, in this case, I think. It's it. Uh, it was a streamlining of the plot for the the movie. It's it's its own. It's still very much the story, but it's taking the elements that uh, by the screenwriter to that it could to go straight through to focus uh, on the murder mystery, on the relation between uh, um, Jorge's uh, worldview versus Williams, with a late appearance by uh, Bernardo Gui and his his own uh, you know unrelenting take on. Um, On fulfilling the papal dictate of of burning heretics and and rooting Mm -hmm. that stuff out there, Um, but there that idea of a palimpsest approach to story is something that we're seeing more and more now in in a um, miniseries context. Perhaps the most. Um, extreme version I've seen in the last couple of years, or not ever, pretty much, is the new Watchmen series. Yes, oh um, yeah. Which takes...
0: Wonderful, I'm enjoying the, it. Yeah, yeah,
1: which takes the, the basic concept. Yep, pushes it out, and opens the
0: world up, and d- does it in a whole novel way. Yeah. It's wild, and yeah, so that takes place like 30 years after the events of um, uh, the, the film. Um, to piggyback off that idea, uh, that quote I use, um, you know, books always speak, to other books there's a uh, you know that line it refers to a postmodern idea that all texts perpetually refer to other texts rather than external reality which also harkens back to the medieval notion that citation and quotation of books was inherently necessary to write new stories they this is um this is I'm reading this actually from uh, wiki but the uh, the novel ends with irony as eco explains in his postscripts to the name of the rose very little is discovered and the detective is actually defeated uh, after unraveling the central mystery in part through coincidence and through error, um, William concludes in fatigue that there was no pattern. And this, this, um, so this kind of turns the modernist quest for finality or certainty and meaning on its head, leaving the overall plot, partly the result of an accident and arguably without meaning.
1: Yeah. So, and that, that, that really more, most Directly specifically refers to the nature of the deaths themselves. Originally, it's thought that each of the deaths coincides so with
0: five deaths in the, the book as well. Yeah, exactly. Still,
1: the yep. book of Revelation, the yep. different trumpets, um, yep. one taking place, uh, you know, falling from the sky, a sea of blood, yeah. um, you know, like that. The the, the I believe uh, something in the in water or star falling into water. Mm. Uh, you know, the pain of a thousand scorpions. These uh, things that coincide it turns out coincidentally with the deaths of these monks um, however there is there is plenty of deduction that that goes on in in other aspects sure. that surround the resolution yep. but specifically about how to um, resolve the mystery of the library itself how to get to this one antechamber that has the most um, the most closely guarded secrets and it's been constructed to keep them and the man who is in the end keeping those secrets mm-hmm. and how they go about resolving them um the other thing is again the name of the the name of the rose itself as a as a title mm-hmm. and the idea that one of my favorite aspects of it and it's again Totoro um uses it as the last line in the in the film as he's saying farewell to adso um, the idea that, you know, the beauty of, fla- of the flowering rose will fade um, in time so that it, all that remains is its name. Yeah. And yeah. that idea could be used for, you know, obviously not just the flower, but the girl.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, um, yep. The library yep. itself. Yeah,
0: that's what was, we were saying. It was the layered name. Yeah, it's exactly all those, all the above. Yeah. yeah and, no-
1: and it's the idea that um, itself, by reading the book and these names on a page, you can re, re- um rebuild them in your mind. But in the end, all those people are dead and gone. And it's just their names that, that uh, remain. And that's the importance of the library, of the books. Well, yeah, I love
0: the idea. I love thinking about how uh, dedicated they were to um, keeping and preserving knowledge. Um, The flip side of that though, is they, those in power have the ability to choose and manipulate which knowledge moves forward into the future. And that, that's, I mean, that's,
1: that's intense to think about. Yeah, and I, I was actually more impressed with the film's visual depiction of the of the books in the library. There's a time there's a, a scene where um, Sean Connery and, and Christian Slater first go in their into the library for the first time and are examining these books and. Um, the illustrations on them and I think one of them is a book about about conception and birth and it shows a, a woman with mm-hmm. with multiple children in her uterus and how the what the process is and this is mind-blowing stuff for 1327 yes. and the idea that I think uh, one of the two of them uh, I think Connery mentions like you know knowledge like this should not be suppressed yeah. there's something interesting though about it is that within that knowledge is uh, multiple and in- there's there's the the finite stuff, and then there's opinion, and there's in both both cases, Adso, uh, both in the the miniseries and the film, there's a portion where Adso is reading a book, where it's essentially an editorial by the writer on his on on love, and saying love itself is not a problem, it's not a bad thing, it's when it become turns to obsession, hmm. and it twists the body and as well, and he's to really what that's talking about is is lustful obsession yeah and it doesn't necessarily and as it's played out in the book and in the story it's not just about uh lust of sex but lust of knowledge mm. and a lot of the deaths that are caused yeah. are out of curiosity mm-hmm. they can't help themselves yeah. they have to touch and read this book yeah. that will kill but they just have they have to they have to know why they have to know its secrets what does it hold mm-hmm. um and it turns out that it's, that's uh, something that's anticipated by, by Jorge. Yeah. And when he takes a, a poison and attaches it to the... Um, to the book. To, to the to book, the, the, to the pages. Yeah. It's better, book, yeah. Yeah, it's better explained in the miniseries yeah, about absolutely. why people are licking their fingers To turn, to turn pages. pages,
0: exactly. That's, yeah, that's where the poison comes in.
1: Yeah. So the the poison is is basically transferred uh, when when these people are found, their their tongues and their fingers are turned black mm-hmm. because when they turn the page, the poison hits their finger. Yeah. Um, they they lick their tongue he to made, their You made finger. the book a weapon. Wild. Wow. It is. Yeah. And that's something where it's uh, also again it's a, a judgment of of not just human nature but anticipation of how people act and how. I, these, the, the idea that also it's, it's a, also a dark echo of you know an unconcern for uh, you know hygiene mm-hmm. that I think that the movie actually does better than the, the oh, then, than, yeah, than, yeah, than yeah. the miniseries yeah, yeah, because yeah. It makes the the film's a lot dirtier mm-hmm. than the miniseries. Mm-hmm. Miniseries great costumes, yeah. great the, yeah. the whole time I sat, I watched it though. I was like.
0: Yeah, it it's mean, yeah yeah it's a I lot mean, grimy yeah. enough yeah
1: yeah and uh and again this is 20 years before that lack of high, hygienic self-awareness really bit Europe in its ass
0: yeah 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 uh, problems to say the least absolutely yeah. um one thing that that the um the, the story really made me think about a lot was a uh, power structure and just like those in power and you know it's uh those in the head of the church, some of these people in the uh, in the series and the book and everywhere, where they they would do things that um, you know were were completely off base to the morals and everything that they tout to maintain that power. And I'm th- I believe that that idea is you know it's for the greater good. They believe that if they are. Even if they have to kill or, or you know lie or whatever to maintain that power for the for the greater good, and you can you know you can hard, you can draw parallels of that to you know politics of today and everything. I mean that's that's it made me think a lot about power structures and the things people in power will do to keep that power.
1: Exactly, and I think you know it, one of the, the you see it in in from the bottom up. Um, both both cases, you see the procession of peasants coming into the monastery to. Trade food for money mm. from monks, um, and what that um, what the reverberations of that wealth of the monastery have uh, for the monks who handle those transactions for the abbot who oversees it and himself was once a rich person whose parents gave up their wealth to be uh, to uh, follow following a life of impoverishment though the son uh, is obviously uh, regretful of that decision Mm -hmm. and spends the rest of his life trying to secretly regain the wealth that he has lost as abbot. Um, The other side of that is, again, the visiting papal delegation, the uh, the big difference in the way they dress, act, and eat compared to the Franciscans they're debating. Um, Again, in the miniseries, That's put in, in very stark relief with Regard to the the gold crosses, the the velvety hats and and capes, and um, when someone asks one of the monks what his greatest possession is, he takes his shoe off and shows it and has a hole in it, saying that he's um, used it to spread the word of God. Uh, plenty. It's almost like his yeah. version of a cross. Yeah. It's even more important because yeah. it's taken him far and wide. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing is the idea that that these orders of monks, whether the you know, the Franciscans or, or or otherwise, were essentially deployed to spread and maintain the faith for the rank the rank and file peasantry um, that the more ivory towered um, um, cardinals and high end priests had receded from in in uh, you know Vatican City and Rome and, and stuff. Mm-hmm. This is what. In the you know the pre-plague world, the whole the Holy Roman Empire um, maintained it in the lands. Um, in the, it's gone into in a little bit more detail, um, in not a little bit more, much more detail compared to the movie in the, um, the miniseries. The idea that this is a time of two popes, one in France mm-hmm. and one in Italy, mm-hmm. with one of them backed by the Holy Roman Emperor. And the idea that there are these, um, when we first meet Adso, his father is fighting under the emperor, um, against the papal, the papal side. And what's at stake between the two? The stakes are raised for this debate because, uh, because of the wealth of the church translates to power over the state in these other, yeah. in these other countries. Yep. And and that's, again, like, as you said, like the abuse and wielding of power so what that, well, all that is to say is from the monk to the abbot, to the, um, to the, um, inquisitor, to the generals, to the king, to the Pope, mm-hmm. everyone has their, their, their power that they're trying to protect yep. and wield in this, in this, um, world where the word of God supposedly, mm-hmm. and everyone speaks to it is the final arbiter. Yeah. But it isn't. Yeah, it's yeah. it's how it's who has control over the interpretation of
0: that. Yep. exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I really want to um, uh, thank you. I mean, you you brought this uh, series and movie and this whole story in, into my life. I mean, you mentioned it, I hadn't hadn't seen it yet, and I'm, like it, it's it's absolutely it's compelling. Like I, I've said already, but on so many levels. And like you know, there's, there's historical lessons there. There's lessons about human nature. There's lessons about you know power and and uh you know how power uses knowledge to wield this is just so much to chew on to and thank you for for introducing me and i've I've had so much fun thinking about it and i i just i not only above all that i love john deter and getting to see him and this is it's just it's it's worth anyone who is listening and and hasn't seen uh seen this miniseries it's worth watching it just for his uh depiction of William it's stunning
1: yeah I agree and and again this is this is you guys are also a film uh, podcast Mm -hmm. the idea that you know this is this um film came to Connery at a very important time in his career he'd had about five pretty fallow years in terms of commercial success um in 81 he was in the movie called Outland um which was basically a remaking of High Noon Mm -hmm. um in a mining colony Outside of Saturn. He was it was pretty good. It was a Peter Hyams film, Peter Hyams directed 2010, yep. which was the remake yep. of 2001 mm-hmm. That same year, um, Connery uh, showed up as in Time Bandits. Yeah. And then over the next five years, he was in various other movies that that I, I dare you to go to IMDB and look at them and try to they're remember any of them. Yeah. They're yeah. they're all unmemorable. Yep. Then in nineteen eighty six, things change. Mm-hmm. He's in uh, he's in Name of the Rose yep. and, and in Highlander. Yeah. Yeah, next year he's in The Untouchables. Mm-hmm. He wins an Oscar. Yep. Then he's the next year he's in Hud. Red October. Yeah,
0: you're right. That was a, that was start of a big kind of launch of re, you know reinvigoration Absolutely. of his career. Yeah.
1: yeah, and but the first of, the first of the, those films to be released, the first uh, for me was was interesting because you asked me before what was the first time I heard about this. Yep. Well, the first time I heard about it and didn't realize I had heard about it was watching Train Spotting. There's oh. a scene. There's a scene in *Trainspotting* where uh, Johnny Lee Miller and, and Ewan McGregor huh? are, are sitting in the park with an air gun, and they're talking about uh, Sick Boy's unifying theory of life, which is that in life you have it, then you get old, and you lose it. Yeah. And they start out by talking about Connery, and he's he's going down his movies because Miller's uh, Sick Boy's he's, he's obsessed with uh, uh, 007 mm-hmm. and all the James Bond stuff, and he's and he says is like I what I'm really saying is that with the notable exception of the name of the rose it's been all downhill for a an <laughs> since. And, you, and I didn't know what that meant oh my goodness and, you're, you're, and McGregor I'm so glad
0: you pointed that out God, I, I yeah. had no idea Yeah.
1: and McGregor says well what about the untouchables yeah rank that at all. It's a pity vote.
0: <laughs> oh, <God>. oh, that's <laughs> awesome. But hey, so uh, hopefully we'll do this again soon and get you back on the program. And I want you, you know, hopefully moving forward you'll be a bigger part of the Welcome to the Party Pal team. So thanks again for this. And thank you, everybody out there for taking, uh, for, for joining the party. Hello, Osiris. This podcast is In The Loop, the Legion of Osiris Podcasts. Osiris is
1: creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com He insisted on telling me once again about his unifying theory of life. Certainly a phenomenon in all walks of life. What do you mean?
0: Well, at one point you've got it, and then you lose it, and it's gone forever. All walks of life. Georgie Best, for example, had it, lost it. Or David Bowie, or Lou Reed. Lou Reed, some of his solo stuff's no bad. No, it's not bad, but it's not great either, is it? And in your heart, you kind of know that although it sounds all right, it's actually just shite. (laughs) So who else? Charlie Nicholas, David Niven, Malcolm McLaren, Elvis Presley. Okay, okay, so what is the point you're trying to make? All I am trying to do, Mark, is to help you understand that the name of the rose is merely a blip on an otherwise uninterrupted downward trajectory. And what about the untouchables? I don't rate that at all. Despite the Academy Award? That means fuck all. It's a sympathy vote. So, we all get old, we can't hack it anymore, and that's it? Yeah. That's your theory. Yeah, beautifully fucking illustrated.